a number of years ago, actually, I remember exactly when it was, I came across a very strange midrash, which I didn't understand, and it was sort of uh, percolating in the back of my mind for a long time. So I just want to learn this midrash with you, and then we're going to step back and explore the basic assumptions that I think you need to understand in order to unpack the Midrash. The Midrash, it's on uh, it's source number four. The two Midrashim, they basically say the same thing. Source number four and source number five. The story that the Midrash is um, coming off of is the, the blessing of Yaakov by, by Yitzchak more specifically, the deception of Yitzchak by Rivka. And Rivka tells Yaakov to go out to the flock and to take two good uh, kids of the goats. It says, Kachna lechna el hatzon, kachna misham izim tovim. Take two good goats. Okay? So what... So the Midrash assumes that the Torah doesn't have any... What, the Torah doesn't have anything extra. So why does the... What's good about the goats? Right? They take two goats. What's good about them? So Pshad, of course, is that they're supposed to be tasty goats. Okay? But the way Chazal interpreted it, they interpret good as useful. Okay? That they're good for you. So let's see what the Midrash says. It says, Mahu tovim. What does it mean, good? Rabbi Brachia b'shem Rabbi Chelbo. Tovim lecha v'tovim levanecha. It's a plural, so they're good for you and they're good for your offspring. Tovim lecha shayidehem atamikabel siman brachot. That through them, they're useful to you because as an instrument of drawing out the brachot from Yitzchak. Through them, you will get the brachot from Yitzchak. V'tovim levanecha shayidehem itkaper lehem b'yom ha-kipurim. And they're good for your offspring, for your children, that through these goats, you will be atoned on Yom Kippur. What does that have to do with anything? The two goats, then, are one of the central rituals of Yom Kippurim, is that there was one goat which was offered as a sin offering in the Holy of Holies, in the Kodesh HaKodashim, and the other is known as a scapegoat, the Seir Lazazel, which was cast away in the wilderness. Right? And the ritual was that the Kohen Gadol stood there with a, with a lot, and one, and one came out Kodesh Lashem, and the other one was, la, was uh, Lashem Chatat, and the other one went Lazazel. So what the Midrash is saying, it almost sounds like a, almost like a nonsense riddle, that the two goats in the story with Yaakov and Esav sort of foreshadow the two goats of Yom HaKippurim. Very strange. There's another Midrash, and these Midrashim are early. It's Vayikra Rabba and Breshit Rabba. This is, these are Midrashim from the time of Chazal. A lot of Midrashim are later, but these are Midrashim from the time of Chazal. So the, the next source, the Midrash says a similar idea, but here the play on words is very original. V'nasaha seir alav, the continuation of the Pasuk is that kol avonotam el eretz gzeira, right, that the goat takes upon its head all the sins of B'nai Yisrael to the barren place. So the Midrash says as follows, V'nasaha se'ir alav, ze'esav. The se'ir, the goat, is a reference to esav. Shene'emar hein esav achi ish se'ir. Right? That's the Midrash. It means he's hairy, but the word for hair and the word for goat is the same word in Hebrew, maybe because goats are hairy. I don't know, I was brought up in Brooklyn, we didn't have goats, but uh, goats are hairy, but you see them at the zoo. Okay? So, Hein Esav Achi Ish Seir Et Kol Avonotam Listen to this drasha, it's brilliant. Avonot Tam The sins of the Tam Shne'emar V'yakov Ish Tam Right? So Avonotav Shel Seir Avonotav Shel Tam Al Rosho Shel Seir That's the drasha. Okay? So somehow the, the two goats are, in a sense, you could say it's Yaakov and Esav. Right? Esav is one. He's the Seir La'azazel. And Yaakov is Kodesh Lashem. Like, why should I... 
what sense does that make? Okay. Okay. So before we go any further, I want to step back and I want to spell out some assumptions and um, present a way of thinking about this. Okay. The first assumption is that rituals tell stories. Sometimes you have the story first, and that generates a ritual. Sometimes you have a ritual, and, the, and people don't understand why you do it, and then that generates a story. Different types of rituals. Okay? So, for example, something that's very basic, just to bring it home. Right? Going to the mikveh, and emerging from the mikveh, you become, you become tahor when you emerge from the mikveh. What story does that tell? It tells the story of birth, right? because people emerge out of the water. It also tells the story of creation, because the way... Uh, land is created in the story of Bereshit. It's not that God creates land. The water recedes and the dry land emerges. Right? So the water recedes and the land emerges. It's coming out of the mikvah. And that's why we say, right? uh, someone who converts is like a newborn baby because it really is a story of, it's the story of birth, which, in, which is the story of creation. You can say which came first. I mean, creation is described a certain way because birth, and that goes to the basic consciousness of how people tell stories. Okay? So that's, that's one basic assumption, that rituals tell stories, and we're going to see how the ritual of Yom HaKippurim, what story it tells. Okay? And the second assumption, which is connected to the first, in order to understand it, I want to take a look at... Um, at a source here, the first source, this is from a sefer called the Meh Shiloach, known as the, uh, the person who wrote the Meh Shiloach was the Mordechai Yosef of Ishvitz. Some of you have heard him. He's the last, uh, Shlomo Kalbach made him famous here in America. In Israel, it became famous when the book was reprinted about 20 years ago. Um, a word about the Meh Shiloach, just so you know who we're talking about. Um, Hasidut began as a very popular movement with veneration for the tzaddik and miracle-making, and it was a rebellion against the intellectual elite. Um, and when Hasidut came to Poland, so it continued along that path until the fifth generation, there was uh, someone named the Yehudi HaKadosh Mipshischa. He was known as the Yid HaKudosh, not the Yehudi HaKadosh, known as the Yid HaKudosh Mipshischa. Uh, he rebelled against his Rebbe, who was the Chosem Lublin, and he took Hasidut in a much more intellectual, elitist direction. And he had a Talmud, Reb Simcha Bunim of Pshischa, who, um, if you know, Mickey Rose and Allah Shalom and from Yishalayim wrote a book about him, Reb Simcha Bunim of Pshischa, who was a unique character in the topography of Polish Rabbeim because he knew Latin and he had a secular education. He, was, uh, he didn't write Kfitlach, he wrote prescriptions because he was a pharmacist. Okay? Um, he was a much more modern person. I think also he didn't wear a strangle. There's something. Anyway, he had his own thing. And uh, around him, this is the early, I'm talking the very early 1800s, around him acu- there were accumulated um, the people who would be Polish Hasidut. Rabbi Yitzhak Meir of Gur, first Ger Rebbe. The Kutzker was his Talmud and of Mordechai Yosef of Ishbitz, and among others. Okay? When he passed away, the leadership passed on to the Kutzker. The Mashalok was very close with the Kutzker for 13 years, and then there was this horrific breaking apart, which nobody knows what it was about. There were all these legends about what happened. Eli Wiesel writes about it, I think, in Souls on Fire. Um, it's somehow connected with something that happened on Simchat Torah. Now's not the time to get into it. But um, Mordechai Yosef was... Um, part of the, you could call it the Polish Revolution in Hasidut, which, may, which was much more exacting and much more intellectual. The break between him and the Kutzker probably revolved around the fact that the Kutzker was a very severe personality. It's hard to get along with him, uh, to put it mildly. And uh, Ramon Hayosef was a much softer person. There's a number of places that Ramon Hayosef writes about, because the caste of the tzaddik, a person who's a perfectionist uh, and we'll see this later, actually. A person who is a perfectionist has very little empathy for other people's flaws. And that can make them hard to be around. Okay? 
So that was the Kutzker, and uh, it seems that that's what uh, finally caused the break between him and Mordechai Yosef. Okay? Anyway, so let's get back to this. Let's, let's, let's see what he says here. Okay? So this is uh, the context of this piece from Parshat Miketz, is Paro is talking to Yosef. Okay? And um, he says, Tishma chalom liftoroto. You can understand the dream and you can interpret it. Okay? Hainu, this is the Meashiloach speaking, Hainu, ki kol inyanei haolam hazeh, heim kichalom hatsarich pitaron. All things in this world are like a dream which beg interpretation. And ukemoshi iftorlo ha'adam, kach yakumetz lo. And according to the interpretation, that's how it will turn out. Okay? Now, we don't have to go any further. If I say that the world is a dream, everything in the world is a dream. So first of all, that means, right, you could say, well, it's just a dream, right? But after Freud, and even before Freud, we knew that dreams have meaning, right? Based on what can we assume that, that dreams have meaning is because there's a, it's a projection of consciousness or a subconscious, right? right? If it's, things are repressed, when, you're, when your ego is, is out, so your, your subconscious projects these images into the dream consciousness, right? And that's not an accident, right? That's the basis of uh, psychoanalysis. It's not an accident. People don't do things by accident. They don't say things by accident. Uh, and they don't dream things by accident. The means is meaning to those pictures and the stringing together of those pictures to form a narrative which you call a dream. Okay? Now, if I say, so that's my dream and that's your dream. Right? So if I say the world is a dream, so whose dream is it? Anybody want to venture this, the answer to this question? I think everybody is answering it, but they're afraid to say it. Whose dream is it? It's what? N- no, it's God's dream. It's God's dream, right? Now, as far as I know, I haven't seen elsewhere this idea that in our sources, in Jewish sources, that God dreams. Okay? Obviously, what does that mean, right? But it is an Indian myth, by the way. That, um, the God, that the reality is the dream of the God. So again, there are these um, drawings um, of Vishnu sleeping on a, sna- on a serpent in the, in the Milky Sea, and reality is the dream, is his dream, and there's somebody that's in the dream, and he falls out of his eye through a tear into this void, and then he manages to climb back in through his mouth because he sleeps with his mouth open. Right, that's the Indian, Indian myth. If you're interested in that, there's, a very, there's a, 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 a very, very important book written by a German uh, India scholar named Heinrich Zimmer called Myth and Symbol in Indian Art and Civilization. It's worth the $4 investment to get it used on Amazon. Okay? So he talks about that. In any case, so there is, so there's this um, myth about the dreaming god, but I haven't found it by us, except a reference to this idea here. Okay? So what does that mean? Let me say God dreams. Right? It means that in a certain sense, the world is a projection. Now, this is a way, we're not used to thinking about this unless anybody studied Eastern religions or just listened to Indians talk, right? Is that the world is a projection of the consciousness of God. Right? In Western philosophy, you have this in uh, Bishop Berkeley from the 17th century. It's called idealism. By us, it's not the exact same thing. I don't want to get into it now. But this idea that, in a certain sense, it, it, it creates a different model of understanding the relationship between God and the world. And that is, if you just read the Torah, right, the way they taught you in Kita Aleph, right, I went to Eitzchayim in Borough Park. I know for sure the other people here that went to Eitzchayim in Borough Park. Um, they, the way they taught it is, va, you know, Bereshit Baruch Kemet HaShemayim V'Ta'aretz, right? In the Einstein, Hodgat, no, they didn't teach it in Yiddish, but it doesn't matter. But God is out there, and by an act of will, he creates the world. That's the story in Torah Shebech okay? That's a male model of creation. 
In a sense, men create outside of themselves. Okay? They have an act of will, they write, right? You don't have to be Freud to know what, a, what ink coming out of a pen is, right? So th- it's a male model of creation. Okay? But there's another model of creation, right? There's the female model of creation. My daughter, when she was like two or three, and my wife was pregnant with the second one, so she asked me, right, we were once all in Hashem's tummy. And I said, well, this one's going to grow up to be a theologian. Um, she didn't, but anyway. Uh, women create internally, and the, the creation is organic rather than as an act of will which is transcendent. Right? And this talking about creation this way, that the world is the dream of God, it's sort of an overflow of consciousness. Right? Okay, so that's, that's one thing which is very important here. It's going to help us understand the Midrash. Okay? And another thing about um, the world is source number two. This is from a sefer called the Beit Yaakov. Rabbi Yaakov Liner of Redzin, who was the son, it happens to be, of Mordechai Yosef of Ishbitz, right? just moved up the block to Redzin. Um, he says as follows, Shaha'olamot heima kigildei bitsalim The worlds are like the layers of an onion. He was Eastern European. That's what they had. If you were ever in Eastern Europe, they don't have fresh fruits or vegetables. Right there, onions. Shalom olamot hein kigildei b'tzalim. Hainu shekol olam ve'olam hu levush le'olam shelemalam imenu. Every world is a garment of the world above it. I'll explain this in a minute. Ve'olam azeh hu levush le'olam elyon. And this world is a is a levush is a garment of a higher world, v'chein lamala lamala ad ein sof mamash. Okay? It's called, there's a, reality is multi-layered. Okay? So let me give you an, an example what, what? So let me give you an example of what, what this means when you talk about levushim. Okay? Or different levels of reality. You can know people, let's talk about people for example. There's levush, is right, what you put on, right? What you put on is how you project yourself into the world. Right? There's my neshama, okay? and then there's my guf, and then there's the levush. Everything, and one, thing's levush, one thing is a levush of another. Right? So, for instance, my car is also a levush. You can know something about me from the car that I drive. So in Israel, I drive a seven-year-old white Toyota Corolla. Right? So what does that tell you about me? Not much, because there are another two million Israelis that drive the same car. But it might still tell you something that I prefer reliability over style. Okay? That's pretty accurate, right? So, but then you can look at my library and see which books are higher up, which have dust on them, and which books have all my notes in them, and which books I hide that I don't want people to know that I read. And then, so that, that will tell you, that's like a projective test. Okay? So it'll tell you, that's another lavush, right? And then there's how I got dressed to come here, right? That's another lavush. That's literally lavush, but it's also how I chose to reject myself. And everybody, so different levels of lavushin. Your voice is a lavush. The look in your eyes is a lavush. So when you talk about the world, and you talk about God and the world, so the sunset is a lavush of God, and the Torah is a lavush of God. They're projections of, of God, right? Um, just to bring home this, I think it's very important to, to bring this home, because when you talk about different levels of reality, Western people are used to, you know, sort of empirical science. Does it work or doesn't it work? You know, don't talk to me about, like, fantasy realities, right? And don't talk to me about dreams. Dreams are not real, okay? But it's not really so. There, there's, um, let's talk about our reality, and let's talk about, for example, dream reality. It's important to understand different levels here because the story, we're going to come back to the Shnei Si'irim, it resonates on many different levels. And those levels we'll see in, just like the levels of the onion. Okay? Just the layers of the onion. The, let's talk about waking reality. Okay? When we're awake, we're all here, right? There are certain rules that apply. Right? There's cause and effect. 
there's, um, you could call it, intersubjectivity. I have a subjective experience of being here, but we all share, to one degree or another, the same subjective experience. So we all have the same subjective experience. It's not objective, but it's intersubjective. It's not objective, but it's intersubjective, right? So reality, that type of reality, when you know you're awake, right? That uh, sociologists call paramount reality. Okay? So let's talk about a different reality. Let's talk about dream, right? So we say dreams are not real. You wake up and you realize it was a dream, but sometimes, okay? the dream can be so vivid and could be so revealing that when you wake up, the imprint that that dream leaves leads you to question what exactly is real and what's not real, right? So something broke through into what you thought was reality. Some other reality broke through into that reality, right? That, in the Lashon of the anthropologist, is called the hierophany when one reality breaks into another. Okay? So we have multi-level realities and they are organically connected, just like the layers of an onion. Right? And um, in a sense, the one way of talking about reality is a projection of God's consciousness. Okay? Now let's go back okay, and look at the story. Okay, so we have the two Si'irim on Yom Kippur, the two goats, and we have the Kohen Gadol with the, with the lot. Okay? And what the Midrash is saying is that the story that the scapegoat is telling, that, that, that ritual is telling, is the story of Yaakov and Esau. Right? And the truth is, if I wanted to reenact, and I don't know why I should want to do that, right? But if I wanted to reenact somehow the blind father with his two, with his twins standing before him and having to choose one over the other, but being incapable of making the choice and in a sense having to let go and let fate, it looks like fate, right? It's God with a little help of his friends, right? It's God with Rivka, right, that did it, right? But it looks like fate, but in fact it's God. I think that's a simple reading of the story. So if I want to recreate that in a ritual, so I take the Kohen Gadol and I let him do a Goral, because he doesn't, do, he doesn't choose. The Goral looks like it's arbitrary. That's the connection between Purim and Yom Kippur, right? Everything. Right? The, the real connection between Purim and Yom Kippur is the Goral. He peel pur hu ha Goral, and Yom Kippur is the Goral. Okay? But that's a whole separate story. If I come back here, Purim, I'll talk about Purim. But, uh, the, so that's how I recreate the story of Yaakov and Esau. Now, why should I want to do that on Yom Kippur? There are a lot of stories. Okay? So for that, and this is the first level, where does the story of Yom Kippur occur the first time in the narrative of Yitziat Mitzrayim. Where, where, where does it occur in the storyline? What? Where does it occur? Desert. What? Desert. In the desert, right? But after, in, by saying the storyline, right? It's after, what? Egel. After Cheta Egel, right? Okay. After the sin of the golden calf, we have the story of Yom Kippur, right? If you remember the, the calculation that Chazal make, if the Torah is given on Shavuot, so Moshe Rabbeinu went up for 40 days, and that was Chet HaEgel at the end of 40 days, the Luchot were broken, that's Shavas HaBetamuz, right? And then in another 40 days, he went up to pray, and God said, Salach Kidvarech at the end of those 40 days, which is when? Rosh Chodesh Elul, right? And that's why the Sfaradim start saying, Hashem Hashem Kel Rachum V'chanun Erech HaPayim on Rosh Chodesh Elul. That's another example of a ritual telling a story. This is a telling the story in the de- of the desert. And then he went up for another 40 days and God said, Sol Lecha Shnei Luchot Avanim and he goes back up and he comes back down on Yom Kippur, right? And that's the Yom Atan Torah, the Rav writes about this, right? Yom Atan Torah of the second Luchot, okay? Yom Kippur happens after Chet Ha'egel. It's the, it's the, in a sense, it's the second giving of the Torah. And why do you need that? Because B'nai Zoluchote and committing idolatry 
is a fundamental breach of the covenant. So when you have a fundamental breach, everything is finished. Right? That's the basis of the fundamental Christian theology, which they call supersessionism. Right? The Jews had a covenant with God. What? The Jews had a covenant with God, and it was superseded. Now there's a covenant with the nations through Jesus. Right? So that's supersessionism. Right? So the svara is a correct svara. The details, are, we believe, are wrong, but the svara is a correct svara. When you, when you violate the covenant, you need a new covenant. Right? And that's exactly what you have on Yom Kippur. If you read the Pesukim carefully, what does it say? Hinei anochi koreit brit. When the second time. After Chayta Egon. After God forgives them. Hinei anochi koreit brit. And then he says, Hashem, Hashem, kerachum echanun. That's called, we say it in Slichot, brit shloshesrei. That's the brit of midat harachamim. Okay? So there's a, there's a necessity for a new covenant after Chayta Egon. Okay? So what is the content of that new covenant? that despite the fact that, that, that the people sinned, there's still a special relationship which is maintained with God. So what do you have to reenact? You have to reenact the chosenness of the Jewish people again. That's what has to happen on Yom Kippur. You have to show that you still that the chosen, whatever the chosenness means, right? That it has to be reenacted. So you go back to Sefer Bereshis. Where did the Jewish people chosen? The Jewish people are chosen when the bracha goes to Yaakov and not to Esau. So what you have is Yitzchak is the Kohen Gadol. Okay? In Chazal, this is very interesting, Chazal actually viewed Yitzchak as a Kohen Gadol. Mina Mekdash lo he never left Eretz Yisrael, just like the Kohen Gadol under certain circumstances is not allowed to leave the temple. Right? To the extent that there's even this really strange Gemara in Masechet Tubot that says that when Rivka fell off the Gamal, Right, she became a Mukat Eitz. She lost her virginity through that. And then, how can a Mukat Eitz marry a Kohen Gadol? Because Yitzchak is like a Kohen Gadol. Right? You get this funny halachic cheshbon, right? So, Yitzchak is the Kohen Gadol. Yeah? So, and the Goral is the way we reflect Yitzchak's helplessness and blindness in that situation. Okay? So, Yaakov is chosen and Esav is cast away. So, that's that's the, that's the story that the ritual of the Seir HaMishtaleach tells. Okay? That's one layer of the onion. Okay? It's only one layer. That's the superficial layer of the onion. Okay? Let's take it, take it down one level. Okay? What was that movie with the different dreams within dreams? What? Right. Okay, now we're taking it one into so the dream within the dream. Okay? Um... Let's take a look here. There's a Meashiloach. It's source number seven. Okay. So when um, when Litvaks learn Hasidus, they think it's a nice Hasidish vort. Okay. But when you look at it carefully, you realize that there's um, there's a whole symbolic language. And sometimes, it, you, when you look back at it, it's actually pshat. Okay. So this is a good example of that. He noticed, certainly a problem pshat. This is going on when Yaakov turns his hands, switches his hands. Okay. And he noticed that Yit, now, I don't know how many of you juxtaposed Yitzchak and, and Yaakov, but Yitzchak could not switch his hands. And Yaakov has no problem in switching his hands. Right? Similar situation, but he's a different person. Okay? So what is that about? Okay? So he talks about why is it that Yitzchak can't switch his hands and Yaakov has no problem in switching his hands. Okay? So he says as follows. Liot ki Yitzchak avinu hayam madregato midat ha-gvura. Okay, we've got to stop here and explain this. Okay? He says it's common in Kabbalah 1.1, you could say, right? This is already, even if you studied Ramban la Torah, which everybody holds as normative Judaism, right? Um, that the various um, personalities in Sefer Bereshit, they, um, they are associated with Sfirot, with divine attributes, okay? What does that mean? Okay? 
What, is, what does it mean if I say Yitzchak is Gvura, he's divine judgment? Or if I say Avram is Chesed, he's unconditional love? What does that mean? Okay, so that's it. But why do I make it into a divine attribute? Right? It's true that if you, people are complicated, but sometimes you can sort of... What personality type are they, right? So this is a chesed person, this is a gvura person, this is a person... Right, but why do you call... What does it mean when you say it's a divine attribute? See, here the dream analogy is very helpful. Okay? It means, on one level, that if you want to understand God's unconditional love for creation, contemplate Avram Avinu. Okay? Save stone, even though they don't deserve it, right? If you want to understand God's judgment, so, un- so contemplate Yitzchak. If you want to understand Midat HaRachamim, God's mercy, contemplate Yaakov. That's one level. But here the dream analogy is very helpful. It says, if God had a dream of a, this person that he told to leave his homeland, right, and the person was willing to sacrifice everything for him because he loved him, and he did everything that he asked without, without question, and he was willing to sacrifice his son for him, right? And that God, God comes to you and he says, I had this dream, what does it mean? Right? And you say, because this is what it means. You have this unconditional love for creation. And the character, the way uh, it comes out right, in your consciousness right, is this dream about Avram Avinu. Okay? So that's a way of trying to understand that Avram Avinu is a lavush of God. It's a lavush, but there's no one thing can lavush all of God. It's a lavush of one aspect of God's personality. Okay? And the, the narrative that the Torah tells is in a sense a record just of the dream. So that we, because it becomes a projection of God. Are you with me or is this like too far out? What? Okay. So, okay. So, liyot ki Yitzchak avinu, ki Yitzchak avinu haya madregato madregat gvura. V'lachen ratzal levarechet Esav. That's why he wants to give the blessing to Esav. Why? Because midat adin, according to the law, who should get the bracha? The Bechot, right? Ki midat divrei Torah, right? That's the law. Kach shama, for example, kach shama Moshe mipiha gvura. So it almost casts Yitzchak as God. Okay, let's put that aside for a second. Kach shama Moshe mipiha gvura. V'lachein amar yikov hadin According to the law, without chachmas, right? The law is the law. V'lachein and therefore he couldn't go against the law, right? If that's who he embodies. Okay? Okay? So that's, that's understanding Yitzchak, why Yitzchak cannot shift his hands. Okay? Um, I'm just skipping a little bit. Um, and God would not allow that to happen though. Right? Vilibo hayat tahor, Yitzchak's heart was, was pure, vizukach, vizibev hadavar, God um, orchestrated it such, shiyavarechet Yaakov below da'ato, that he should pass the blessing to Yaakov without being conscious of it, because he can't be conscious of it, because he's din. Vaalzenemar, okay, atatomech gorali, aval Yaakov, but Yaakov, I'll explain this in a second. Yitzchak is Midat Hadin. Let's just accept that for now. How do you define, here's a one and a half line definition of midat hadin, of justice. Right? Justice is the indiscriminate application of abstract principles in a particular instance. Okay? The key word here is indiscriminate. In other words, you cannot discriminate. Once you, there's no such thing as one law for one person, another law for another person. Right? They tell a story about the briskarov that when he, would, did it, when he was, was sat in a Din Torah, he used to put his talus over his head so he shouldn't see the litigants and be swayed 
by their demeanor, by just the law. Right? You don't pay attention to the people. The law is impersonal. It has to be that way. Okay? That's what the law is. Okay? So that's Yitzchak. Yitzchak is blind. Justice is blind. Right? It's not just a Greek myth. Right? Yitzchak is blind because justice is blind. Okay? Not allowed to pay attention to, to anything else. Okay? But sometimes, through um, ruthless application of the law, we actually lead to, it leads to um, an outcome which is not fair, which is not equitable. And that's where you get the, the difference between justice and equity. Right? It's not fair. So you can look at it and say, yeah, it all went, like you can check every step of the way and you can't find the flaw in the reasoning, but the outcome is something, there's something wrong, right? That is what Midat HaRachamim is. Midat HaRachamim is to look beyond the letter of the law and what he has, this is actually very important for understanding for a philosophy of Halacha because the Litvaks will always tell you that Ritzon Hashem is the, is the Halacha. Right? There's nothing beyond that. Okay? So what he's alluding to here, that's not so. There's Yitzchak, but Yaakov is beyond that. Yaakov, And here you get a dissonance. This is a cornerstone of his thought, but we don't have uh, time to unpack that. But it's a cornerstone of his thought that Ritzon Hashem and Halacha are not identical. Halacha is what you do when you don't know Ritzon Hashem sort of a general principle that you follow. And the truth is, it's not so far from the Rambam and Moronavuchim, which is really interesting that they, that they, meet, they meet on this point. Okay? So the, um, but Yaakov has an intuitive, right? Mistakel el habina. He doesn't look at what it says in Taisus. He looks at what it says in his heart. Right? He has an intuitive faculty, right? which he looks to, which sees something beyond the law. And that is Midat HaRachamim. Okay? And that is... So that's why Yaakov can say, okay, the law is that Menashe should get it. But I really know in my heart that Ephraim should get it. Yaakov is an embodiment of switching his hands around. Okay? Now, but this also goes in this dream that God has. Is it's, every, it's not only what Yaakov does which displays Midat HaRachamim. It's everything about him. His being is Midat HaRachamim. Right, what he does in the story is Midat HaRachamim. He himself, the fact that he gets the bracha beyond the consciousness, the limitations of Yitzchak, is in itself a revelation of Midat HaRachamim. He is Rachamim, and it's through him that we understand Rachamim in the world. Right? So God now, let's, let's like, God's dream gets a little more complicated, right? So he has this dream of these two brothers and one of them should get it according to the law and then, then, the, then something happens and the other one gets it and he's like, what's this whole bizarre family situation that I dreamt about and I can't, I'm losing sleep over it. What, what is that? So you say, okay. So there's the part that your, the law is important to you and doing the right thing is important to you. But sometimes your intuitions tell you otherwise and, and you're conflicted about that. And sometimes that story has to work itself out. Right? And Yaakov suffers because of the deception. Now's not the time to go into it, right? But just one example, when he says love, when he's deceived by love on the same way he deceived his father, what does love on say when he says, and he said, you fooled me. I said, well, we're supposed to be Rachel. Remember love on's words? Right, right. Lo yasakem bim komeinu. Right, it, it would have been, I'm sure Lovin spoke Yiddish. It was by, right, by uns, tit right? By us, we didn't do it this way, right? By you, right, the implication is, by you, maybe you favor the younger ones, but we go according to the law, right? Um, so he continues to suffer because of that. So sometimes you suffer because of the insights that you have, even though they might be the right thing, but you still suffer, right? So that's, that's Midat HaRachamim. Okay? So, now, so we, now we have it on a different level. What, we, what we've done now is that instead of just talking about Yaakov and Esav as being the narrative that the ritual reenacts, right? so now we have, let's trace it. You have a ritual in Sefer Vayikra. 
and you have a narrative in Sefer Bereshit, which the ritual tells about. Okay? So that's... But now, I'm not even talking about it as Yaakov and Esav anymore. Now I'm talking about it as divine attributes. I'm talking about God's head. Right? I'm talking about the God... Is, this is what's going on inside. Because it's all a projection of God's consciousness. So it's just in order to, under, to understand what this is about. Right? Okay. If you... This, by the way, answers another question. Do you ever wonder why we become so obsessed with the Satan and Saroshel Esav around Yom Noraim? Like, why don't we blow the show for Rosh Hashanah? Why do we why we took care twice? To kiss the Mu'uma, to kiss Yusuf, why? Since when did we get so afraid of the Satan? No, there's a, a certain Christian sects, they're obsessed, they're dualistic, there's the evil and there's right. But we're not Zoroastrians and, and, and we're not devil worshippers. Why are we afraid of the devil all of a sudden? It's because of this. What does the Kitrug, what does the prosecution have to say on Yom and Narayim? Right? The Brit went to Yaakov. According to the law, who should it have gone to? Esav. Esav's claim is very simple. If all things being equal, I should have gotten it. If you got it, it's because you're somehow better than me. You're not any better than me. He doesn't have to say that we're so bad. Let's face it, we're not so bad. This is not what you're supposed to say before Rosh Hashanah, right? You're supposed to say you're bad, you're bad. No, you're not, we're not, the Jewish people are not so bad, right? So we can always say we're not so bad, but that's not good enough. Because Sarosh Aleisav says, okay, you're not so bad, but you're not any better than anybody else. That is the kitrug. Because if, if all he has to do, to, from his perspective, to negate the covenant is to say that you don't deserve it. I don't have to be any better, he says. Because the law is on my side. If you got it, it's because you're better. You're not any better. That's why we're afraid. That's what you're afraid of. On, uh, on Arab Rosh Hashanah and the whole thing about the Kitru of Shalesa. Okay. Um, let's take a detour to another story of different brothers. Okay? And that is Moshe and Aram. Okay? And that's source number eight in the Mashiach again. But it's a, we'll see, it's a Midrash. Okay? Um... There's no reference here explicitly to Yaakov and Asa, but, um, but Moshe and Aaron, in a sense, are inverted, are the ideal relationship of, Yaakov, of what Yaakov and Asa could have been. If you notice, let me tell you a story. Let's, without names, we'll tell the story. You have someone who has to flee his home because um, of hatred of his brother. He flees and he finds his wife by a well and he lives with his father-in-law. And he establishes his family there until God comes to him and tells him to go back home. And on the way back home, he has this mysterious episode before he meets his brother, right? And when he meets his brother, they kiss each other. Right? Okay, you see the connection? I don't know if you've noticed it before, but okay. How many people noticed that before? Okay, that's what the Zohar says. It's Moshe mi Levar and Yaakov mi Bifnin. It says Moshe and Yaakov are, flip, are uh, two sides of the same coin. The Zohar noticed it. It's not my Kiddush. Okay? So the truth is the stories... Okay, the, say, it's hard for me to, like, to stick on this, but the, the, the stories keep coming around again and again. Like, for, like, this is just to bring this home for a moment. This is an aside. Sefer Shmot tells the story of Sefer Bereshit again. I'll show you. B'nei Yisrael pru paru v'yishutu v'yibu b'ma'od ma'od. Sounds familiar, right? There's a gzera of mayim and there's one who is saved in a teva. And look how the Torah describes the teva. Okay? And then after that, the Jews make bricks out of mud and go back to Migdal Bavel and see the description of the bricks. And after that, in Sefer Breshit, what do you have? After Migdal Bavel, you have the story of the Avot. You have Parshas Va'era, El Avram Yitzchak Yaakov. Okay? 
and we talk about Torah's Moshe and Shiva's Mitzvah's Bnei Noach. And the Mabu was 40 days and Moshe was in the heart for 40 days. Okay? And this is, the, this is the cherry on top of the cake. The Arizal says, when, when God wanted to destroy the Am, what does Moshe say? Do you remember? He says, Mecheni, Mecheni nami sifrecha she katavta, right? Mecheni me Noach. Okay? And if you think about it, Noach is in the same, Moshe is in the same position by analogy that Noach is in, but he says no, right? And that's what it means that the Arizal says that Moshe is a Gilgul of Noach, right? Reincarnation of Noach, okay? Whatever you think about Gilgul and Neshamot, that's not the time to get into it. But, so it's, it's the same story, it happens again and again. So now, Moshe and Aram, okay? Vayelech vayifgeshe, source number eight. Vayelech vayifgeshe u'bahar vayishak lo. Bamidrash. Chesed v'met nifgashu. Tzedek v'shalom nashaku. Okay, because uh, the Pasuk in Mishlei says, right? Um, chesed v'met nifgashu, so that's vayifgeshehu, right? Tzedek v'shalom nashaku, vayishak lo. Okay? Chesed z'aharon, ואמת זה משה, צדק זה משה, ושלום זה אהרון. So now what does the Medrash do? The Medrash is not Kabbalah, right? What does the Medrash do? It takes Moshe and Aaron and it turns them into divine attributes. Right? And the way I would put it, it makes them characters in another dream that God has. Okay? Because it's going to be a projection of what's going on, so to speak, in God's consciousness. Okay? Let's continue. V'inei ita b'midrash, and there's another midrash. This is the Meshiloch puts this together. B'briat ha'olam. Shakadosh Baruch Hu is a famous midrash. Amar lechesed, v'amar yibarei, sh'olam malei chasadim. God asked loving kindness. Should he create the world or not? And loving, yes, because the world is full of kindness. Emet omer lo yibarei, sh'olam malei shkarim. The world is full of lies. Sedek Omer Yibarei, righteousness says, let it be created. Shaolam Malet Takot, the world is full of righteousness or charities. Shalom Omer Al Yibarei, Shaolam Malet Tatot. Okay? Now, he does the, the math, so to speak, and he lines it up, and it doesn't make sense because there's a contradiction. Because on the one hand, he says, um, oh, let's continue the Midrash first. So what did God do? So he cast truth down to the earth, cast it away, and he created the world anyway. Okay? Right? He's emet and he's tzedek in the, in the Midrash. So emet says, lo in the story in Bereshit. But Tzedek says, yes, Yibarei. So is Mo- what is Moshe? Does Moshe, is he an advocate for creation? Or is he against creation? Right? Ech mitzad echad omer Yibarei. Mitzad sheni omer al Yibarei. Okay? So he says, I'm not going to read the whole thing through right now. But what he says is as follows. That Moshe, Moshe's, first of all, Moshe's refusal to go back to Egypt, the 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 stubborn, continuous refusal to go back to Egypt is equivalent to emet omer lo yibare. Right? That is equivalent to, to God not creating. Because that's part of... Just not creating the world. Right? And we have that all over the place, right? If B'nai would not have accepted the Torah, so he would have returned the world to Tovavo, right? So, so creation is at stake in Sefer Shmot. Okay? So Moshe Rabbeinu is not going back to Egypt is a, is a personification of the divine attribute which says don't create. And Aaron is a person who understands that you can't always go according to the emet. You have to suffer sometimes because you love. Right? So that's a, so he's a it's hard love. Right? So he's willing to suffer the reality. Moshe Rabbeinu can't take the reality. Right, he runs away from Paro because it's a big lie. Okay? So then God says to him, I'm just summarizing what he says here, how is it that you ran away from Paro? That's not you, Moshe. Because if you were emet ad hasof, 
what would you have said, what would you have done? You would have turned yourself in and said, I did it, and I'm proud I did it, and I would do it again, and timachepes, and do me something, right? That's what you would have done. That's what MS would have done. That would have happened. You had the head chopped off, right? So you ran away. So that, you, you're not consistent. And one thing that truth can't stand is being inconsistent, right? This is how God wins the argument. You can't win an argument against God ultimately, right? So you ran away from Paro, and I'm the one that put it in your head to run away from Paro, just to teach you, okay? He says, and that is vatashlech emet arza. Moshe Rabbeinu is emet, and he runs away. God threw him down. He threw him away from where he was. That's vatashlech emet arza. And what happens when he meets Aaron, when emet and chesed meet, right? So Moshe undergoes a transformation. And he goes from emet to tzedek. Emet is an objective quality, right? Something is either true or false, right? That's if you go according to the correspondence theory of truth, right? That what I say reflects what there is. So it either does or it doesn't. If it reflects what is, then it's true. And if it doesn't reflect what is, then it's not true. It's very simple, right? So emet is uncompromising. Righteousness is not exactly, is not the same thing as truth, right? It's when the human element of understanding becomes admixed with emet, you get righteousness. So Moshe Rabbeinu undergoes a transformation through his nishika with Aharon, and he transforms from emet to tzedek. Emet omer lo yibarei, but tzedek omer yibarei. Okay? That's, that's what he does here. So that's Moshe and Aram. So in order for redemption to take place, Moshe Rabbeinu has to go through a process, a maturing process. Right? People who want truth, emet, right? people who want to be right all the time, right? people who are all or nothing, they most often get nothing. That's the way it is. Right? So if you're emet adasov, it's impossible. Emet cannot persevere by itself. So that's the transformation that Moshe Rabbeinu has to, has to undergo. Okay? What does it mean? Let's go back to Maisa Bereshis, right? We're going backwards now, right? Because, in a sense, Moshe and Aaron is like, is uh, Yaakov and Esav, right? Because the din is, if you're going to go emet, Esav should get it, right? It, doesn't, it casts Esav as Moshe, right? But Esav should get it. But we understand that it can't be that way for whatever mysterious reason. So Yaakov has to get it. Yaakov has to get the brachot. Okay? So here, Moshe Rabbeinu insists on not creating, on not going back. But he undergoes a transformation. And it's a necessary transformation. In order to have redemption, there has to be a transformation first. Okay? Um, let's talk a moment about... Rosh Hashanah, okay, and Yom Did anybody ever wonder how is it that Rosh Hashanah, the first day of the year, the new year, how did that come to be associated with Din? Why isn't it like January first when you party? Like how is it Yom? It doesn't say any place in the Torah that Rosh Hashanah is a Yom Hadin. It says Yom Shuah and somehow Shuah is associated with Din, but it doesn't say explicitly. How did that happen? Okay. Yeah, but what, how do we think of that story? It doesn't say that any place in the Torah, right? So, and that's assuming that that's that day. How is a day of creation, if you assume it's a day of creation, how is that associated with judgment? Okay? So here, let's go back, let's get back to basics. Rashi ala Torah. Do I have it here? Um, it's the third Rashi ala Torah. Let's hear it. Yes, source number six. Okay? Bara Elokim. Right, it's Breshit Bara Elokim. Bara Elokim. Vilo Amar Bara Hashem. Okay. Shebetchila. Right, the name Elokim is associated with Midat Hadin. Now, it's not time to get into it. Why? But it's Mizom Midat Hadin. And the Shem Havai is associated with Midat Harachamim. Okay. Vilo Amar Bara Hashem. 
שבתחילה עלה במחשבה לברותו במידת הדין, ראה שאין עולם מתקיים, הקדים מידת רחמים ושיתפה למידת הדין. So he saw the world could not exist with מידת הדין, and so he mixed with it, he alloyed מידת הדין with מידת הרחמים, היינו דכתיב, and that's פרק ב', ביום עשות השם אלוקים ארץ ושמיים. So now we're back, and here Pshat in the Rashi, and this is based on the Midrash, right? We're talking about God's consciousness. Before, you could have thought maybe I was making this stuff up, but what does it mean that Allah b'machshava, right? He wanted to do it this way, do it that way, right? When we talk about Rosh Hashanah as uh, Yom Hadin, and how did that come about, right? Where does it say in the tefillah that Rosh Hashanah, that Aleph Tishrei, is the day of creation. Hayom harat olam. What does that mean? Translate it. It could be both. Well, it could be, it's conception, right? Harat olam is conception. It's not the day of creation. The day of creation is in Nisan, when the peop- is the birth, right? What? Right, because, right, so, so Nisan is associated with the birth. Okay, this is a whole separate thing, but Kriyat Yamsuf is the water breaks and the people come out and there's blood on the passageway. Okay? It's birth. Okay? There are many other proofs that it's birth. So that's in Nisan. The conception is on Rosh Hashanah. Okay? The world was originally conceived Rosh Hashanah. And this is... This is used, this is cross-cultural, we talk about a conception as an idea, right? And we also talk about, talk about it as fertilization, right? So the, it means that the world was not created on Rosh Hashanah. The world was conceived of on Rosh Hashanah. Because whenever we create, we have, before we create, we have a picture in our minds, right? And then we work to translate that picture, we translate it into a plan, and then we see how we feel about it, and then we translate it into action. Right? What I just described is the ten spherot, right? Because It starts with Chachma, listen carefully, the seminal idea, it's the Zera, and then there's a conception, because Chachma impregnates Bina, it's the heart, so the heart, and that's the, well, okay, I'm not going to get into the whole thing now, but anyway, so the, and the and then it comes down to action. Okay? So the original conception, now now God is really on the couch, and we say, and he had this idea, it seemed like such a good idea, right? To create the world. What type of world could God have imagined all by himself? Right? Only a perfect world. What? Right, a projection of himself, right? So, that's perfect. That's why there's no slichot on Rosh Hashanah. There's no forgiveness on Rosh Hashanah because we don't let, this chet doesn't exist on Rosh Hashanah. It's the world the way God originally conceived it. And that's why, what do you say on Rosh Hashanah? Kol kula ke'ashan You ever like sprinkle water on a hot pot? It gets vaporized, right? So the evil is, va- there's no room for the evil. There's no negotiation. Right? There's no slich and mechila. It's just din. Because it's the way the world, the way God originally conceived of the world. And that is b'kesh ha-kadosh baruch hu l'vroat ha-olam b'midat ha-din. Ra'ash eno mitkayem. That's why it says, ha-hiyah ha-kadosh baruch hu b'nei alamotu machrivan, b'nei alamotu machrivan. Created worlds and he destroyed them. What's the greatest enemy of creativity? Perfectionism. It's no good. Throw it out. Start again. So how many times does God have to do it? So until Okay, this is good. It's good enough. So what did he mean? Did the world change? Or God went through some sort of process, right? And he came to terms with the fact that the world's not going to be perfect because whenever you carry out what you originally thought, it's never exactly what you imagined. But it's something. And if you want to stick to the din, you'll never create what is the shitefi momidat rachamim? That's Yom Kippur. Yom Kippur is an acknowledgement that the world isn't perfect and people are chote, people sin. 
But nonetheless, there's an overriding value which is beyond the deen. There's a value to creation. And that is the reality of Yom HaKippurim. So now let's go back. And what exactly gets reenacted on Yom Kippur? So we have a ritual of Shnei Si'irim which, show, which reenacts the chosenness of the Jewish people after the Chet HaEgel, right? So we have a ritual in Sefer Vayikra, which is responding to a narrative in Sefer Shmot, which is telling a story in Sefer Bereshis. You, got, you have the different layers of the onion? Okay? And then, now let's look at the story in Sefer Bereshis, with a little detour to say to, to, say to another story in Sefer Shmot of Yaakov, of uh, Moshe and Aaron, Okay? which we use to just bring out the, the Mysabracious part of this. Okay? Then you go back, and the story of Yaakov and Esav itself is a projection, a lavush. Right? It's a projection of a different story, of the story of what happened when God contemplated creating the world. So this is what happened. God comes to you, and he lies down on the couch. And he said, I had this strange dream that first of all there was this guy holding up Goralot and sending away a goat and, and, being, and sacrificing another goat. And then there was this story of these two brothers. right? And then I had this story about, about Moshe and Aaron. I had this all mixed up dream. And we say, you know what? When you created the world, you were conflicted. Because it wasn't going to be perfect. So you had to come to terms with the fact that you were going to do it anyway. And it's complicated for you. So you had this dream, this projection of what was going on inside your mind. Right? So it all comes back to Maaseh Breshit. And what happens, on, what do we do on Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur? The most basic things. We reenact the story of creation because we say the world was created in Rosh Hashanah. Right? So we re- and this time of year, the world was created in Rosh Hashanah. So just like we reenact Yitziat Mitzrayim on Pesach, we reenact creation come Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur. So the reenactment of creation is not the reenactment of the narrative of Bereshit Baruch Hu Kemet HaShemayim It's a much deeper reenactment. It's a reenactment of a what went on in God's mind at the time. Okay? Now, why is all this important? Why do I have to know, as I said, God's Havamina? Right? What he thought. Right? Because, right, now we'll go back to, to Brisk. Right? Havaminas are helpful to understand Maskanot. It's helpful if you know what God thought, and you know what, what did he think, and now what's the conclusion. Right? The Havamina is, for us, you know, the perfect world, even though it can't exist. Because if you insist on that, there will be no cre- creation whatsoever. But it still is a model for us to aspire to. The fact that the Torah tells us, why not just, if, if that was Allah b'machshava, the Torah could have started with Perek Bet. The Eilat Torah Tashamayim Ba'aretz beyond Broilohim Eretz HaShamayim Hashem Elohim Eretz HaShamayim it could have started with that but it doesn't it starts Bereshit Broilohim it starts with God's original vision so that first of all that should be a model for us that it's not just what is it's also what could be and what God originally intended the other very important outcome of looking at it this way I the Rambam wouldn't like what I just did right because I was very it's called anthropopathic. I attributed human feelings to God. Right? You're not supposed to do that. Right? The Rambam supposedly won that war. We're fighting a rear battle against it, but the Rambam won that war. Right? But what this does, is it breaks down the um, sharp distinctions that we got from Kita Aleph on between God is out there and we're down here. Right? The if I can talk about world being a, a, a projection of God's consciousness, and I'm an actor in that, it, the distinction between God and myself is broken down because all of creation is organically connected. Right? So that means my consciousness meets God's consciousness someplace. Right? And that becomes very meaningful religiously that lo rachalorichokahi mimcha, right? This is a parashiyot. Karov elecha soto. It really is what beats inside of your heart. That's where, that's where God sits. And that's what it means. It says, Yaakov Avinu, who is chosen, 
right? Hayat tamid mistakel el habina into his heart with his intuitive faculty el ritzon Hashem. Thank you very much. Any questions? It's late already. Yeah. There's a rabbi, a YCP rabbi, Farber. Farber? Oh, yeah, okay. He said basically, Oh, yeah, okay, I know him, yeah. Oh, so you said in reality. What's more real? It's, it, there's not enough time to relate to that question. It's a very good question. And I see you may vin davar, tok davar. The I think, personally, the historicity of the, of the issue is not the point of the story. That's not the point. Yeah? Yeah? Oh, <laughs> yeah? Yeah, okay. It reenacts, if the Kohen Gadol, in a sense, is a projection of God, right? He's acting out the story. So it's the story of the casting away of Din and embracing Rachamim in order to create. It's the, it's the same um, tension that exists between Yaakov and Esav, Din or Rachamim, create or don't create. The one that goes to the Mizbeach goes to the Kodesh. It's taken in to, with God. And the one that gets cast away, in a sense, is Vatashlech Emet Arza. It's thrown away in order that we can survive, in order that there should be creation. So it's reenacting creation again. Very what? I don't know. That's, I'm not sure what the question is in relation to this, that with the Midrash is relating to God's thoughts, but there are things we don't understand. The things which are in Hasidic terminology is so we don't understand everything. But that's, that's true. That's, probably, that's the meaning of that story, I think. I'm sure you can come up with more. Yeah. Oh, okay, you have to read the piece. We don't have time to get into it. Yes, Shalom also undergoes a, some sort of um, transformation. The end, he says, this, basically it goes like this. When Tzedek agreed, like when Moshe came around and said, uh, he agrees, so Shalom also agreed. That's Shalom. Shalom always agrees. Shalom said no, because he didn't want to get into a fight with Emes. When Emes came around, so Shalom agreed. So that's, a, that's it. You take a look at the piece. Yeah, yeah. 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 Ah. Oh, very nice. Okay. He's an embodiment of that. Okay. Okay. Thank you very much. Yeah, well, there's another question. Hold on, hold on one second, one second, please. Hold on one second, there's another question. Well, we, what we don't ask is for slicha nechila, because there's, it's not about forgiving of sins, there's no forgiveness of sins. There's an acknowledgement that God created the world. It's just an acknowledgement. They talk about it as a coronation, a hamlacha. 